Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. It's 20th of June 2022. The 3Cs Initiative Summit has started in Riga along with the 3Cs Initiative Business Forum. Um, the two formats have been complemented by um, at least one other important uh, civil society forum of the 3Cs Initiative that was launched by the president of Latvia uh, last month, exactly a month ago, and was based on the Visegrad Inside Foresight scenario-based report from last year, in which we advocated for creating such a forum and linking it to the topics and the themes of democratic security, which, which actually has happened. Now at the business summit and uh, at the business forum and the political summit of the 3Cs initiative, Several of our recommendations and also recommendations worked out during the Civil Society Forum a month ago will be presented to the stakeholders, to the business and political community of the 3Cs initiative. And several of them have a very practical nature relating to the governance, transparency and, uh, uh, and upgrades to, to the 3Cs initiative. Um, also today, we, together with the Latvian Institute of International Affairs, uh, launched a book in which uh, we contribute uh, with a chapter on on the challenges to the Three Cs Initiative. More analytical, more, uh, you know, more more of a more of a uh, policy paper um, yeah, in full scale uh, form. In, in which we address and, and uh, uh, try to formulate the key problems, opportunities and, um, and proposals for how the 3Cs initiative could really deliver not only for the region, but in a broader sense to the whole of uh, uh, transatlantic space or the, com- the community of democracies. Um, across the world, because we see how Southeast uh, Asian countries, Japan in particular, are interested, are eyeing at the initiative and they're looking for entry point, but still they're struggling to understand, to get the clarity, clarity of purpose and the successful cases from this 3Cs initiative. So these are the highlights uh, from the region in a way. And at the same time, at the end of this week, we have the most important political event of uh, related to the future of Europe. Uh, candidate status of Ukraine is to be confirmed. Uh, we still don't know if it will, but the message of the four European leaders that visited Kiev last week, um, Mr. Draghi, Macron, Scholz and Johannes, the was reassuring that the message of the European Union members will be favorable to to the status of of candidate country for Ukraine, which is something that we've we've been voicing, we've been underlying from the very beginning. We we have co-signed and and published um, an open letter uh, together with many colleagues. uh, from many of them actually from France, like Nicolas Tensner, who with whom we advocated at the that was really end of February that 
Ukraine must get the candidate status now as a response also, not, not just by merits of their reforms that they are conducting during these difficult times, but specifically as a response of EU to Russia, as a display of an ambition that the EU, Europe, would have uh, on, on the map, uh, on, on setting the, the grounds on which it wants to build a relationship with a revisionist and aggressively expanding, uh, or at least attempting to aggressively expand um, player, a foreign policy actor that Russia is. And while Russia is in decline, this decline may last for 10, 20 years more. It is also intertwined with the interests of China, also in the region, and Europe must brace in and, and make some strategic decisions in which it sets aside some of uh, the larger considerations and the criteria and the whole of important uh, yet administrative process related to previously had, has, as, as, as previously the enlargement has been set up. But now uh, strategic also strategic autonomy, but it's the word strategic means that you need to pick and choose and prioritize the thing that is most important above all while sidelining the others. That we seem to argue, and I think there will be interesting read uh, for, for our listeners uh, and also for those who do not listen. So I do recommend those who don't listen to our podcast to read on our site a, a number of articles in which uh, this balance, this shift towards the strategic questions of security and resilience from Russian aggression must not overshadow the basic elements of democratic setup because we must, must not lose sight of what this war is about. It is not only and or not predominantly about geography. It is a war of uh, Mr. Putin and his clique on the fundaments of the European project, which is set as imperfect, however imperfect, but a democratic security project that is to deliver to member states and, uh, and voters and citizens and people who migrate to Europe a sense of um, their personal security, uh, the freedoms, the four freedoms of the European Union, and these principles and values upon which uh, Europe has been built are not only idealistic, normalist uh, agenda. These are our key interests that Europe needs to stand up to defend. And in that light, we look, as we have in the podcast last week, uh, to, to the question of uh, what undermines security in the member states across Central Eastern Europe. In Romania, we spoke with a uh, amazingly brave investigative journalist who uncovers uh, the vulnerable spots uh, of, of the security system of Romania uh, by exposing plagiarism, the 50 cases of plagiarism altogether uh, that Emilia has uncovered. And today we're also commenting on the increasing role of the security services with the uh, with the intelligence, uh, uh, with the intelligence um, uh, reforms uh, in in that country, we continuously monitor the situation related to 
to the rule of law. Um, the conditionality that uh, we see is continuously taking place from the Commission. Um, being in Brussels at our debate, a member of the cabinet of Vera Jourova has been straightforwardly um, saying that the Commission's ambition is to, frankly, not you know, not to make a regime change, this is not the job of the Commission, but definitely to allow for a political process in Poland to take place to, that would reverse some of the negative tendencies of the, of the rule of law. Very interesting and, and still waiting to be unpacked. But Miles, uh, you also speak today uh, uh, for, in an interview with, with Andrew Michta, and and what else do you think is 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 noteworthy that uh, this region is, uh, uh, you know, uh, facing put, facing <laughs> or putting putting its eyes in the ears on? Yeah. Well, Andrew and I actually focus on more of the the larger scale security architecture of the region and so forth. So this this part of the interview is is really straightforward in terms of. What's happening now? What will we see with the NATO summit and so forth? But I think, from my standpoint, and you, you mentioned it very clearly. It's there's security and then there's democratic security, and the idea here is is that it's so intertwined, it's so one and the same right now. And this kind of seems to be the dichotomy that we find ourselves in, right? So even when we you talk about Romania and you you look at what's happening in Romania. And it's a, actually a good case in this sense, because you see that even when, when Macron met uh, Johannes this, this last week, he was, of course, uh, he went and visited an airbase in Romania, right? And this is where 500 French soldiers are, are stationed. And what were the topics that they were actually discussing? They were talking about Romania's um, Schengen accession the security situation, the, the consequences of the war. And and on top of this, you know, also trying to come together with Macron uh, to have a very ambitious plan to kind of support the, the Romanian naval forces and so forth, right? So all of this is there and you look and you see that even on the 16th of June, they there was a draft law that the government of Romania did to purchase 32 F-16 uh, military aircraft from Norway. So you have this, and then on the other side of it, you you have um, the piece that that I kind of was talking a lot with Juana Despa. She's a journalist in Bucharest who specializes in disinformation and media literacy, and she wrote this piece, and you, you mentioned it that uh, about how Romania is, is kind of moving towards centralizing power for the secret services, almost as if they're trying to revive the former former communist. Securitate, right? And the war in Ukraine has accelerated the Romanian politicians' intention to, to change the security laws after 30 years of delay. And this is obviously leading to a, a huge stormy debate in Romania, but it's having more and more disinformation, more and more against NATO that you see in, in a lot of uh, disinformation sources. So from my standpoint, the piece kind of it serves this example of a possible democratic security disintegration in the region. And this is a result of, of what's happening in Ukraine. And it's something that we have to 
obviously remain vigilant on the unintended consequences of prioritizing security mm-hmm. and stability over democratic rule standards and, and principles. So this balance is, is obviously incredibly important, and we know that security is this an imper- is an imperative in today's atmosphere. But we need to make sure that democratic self-defense doesn't result in a total destruction of democratic principles, because this will ultimately be the other side of Putin's war that he would actually want to succeed in. Yes, I absolutely find it also fascinating that uh, we've spoken so often before, over the past decade or so, about democratic uh, democratic uh, deficit in in Europe. And while we are now moving moving towards the discussion on securing Europe, that security in Europe cannot be stepping back to the game of empires and uh, you know big powers politics and we see how also uh, the the visit of Scholz Macron Draghi played out in Ukraine contrary to those expectations and those expecting that this would be display a display of big power politics they actually had to listen and respond to their domestic public opinion calling for more Europe and that's also a result of the Conference on the Future of Europe discussion, partly. It was not so successful, but any right. voices that come on the question of the future of Europe, they demand more democratic Europe, yes. more accountable uh, political and power decisions, and not necessarily going against the concept of the concept of defending Europe at, at some cost. There is a very interesting study released end of last week by ECFR and Evans, uh, Evans Krastev uh, arguments there have been put in front of the policy crowd for a number of weeks already, if not months, that there is a growing tension between party of justice and party of peace right. in which only Poland, according to the survey, would be in a party of justice camp. But what does it mean? I think this is a false dichotomy and a false dilemma. It's not that polls are specifically about justice. Yes, we have a law and justice party in power, but it's just a brand. Perhaps polls, and I believe the Baltics, to a large extent the Nordics, understand and would say something else, that they are not for peace like Ukrainians are not just for peace. So everybody is for peace, but not with some peace is attainable only on the grounds of of a good security. So you can have only a good peace because with bad peace, you have imminent war looming at at a corner. And in that sense, I believe we have more commonality, less of a dichotomy in, in Europe by opinion polls that show in many countries of Europe that first of all, there, uh, yeah, people want uh, want peace, of course, but they support Ukraine overall. And I think as Mark Rutte in Netherlands have uh, said, changing also the position of the Netherlands towards Ukraine membership, stat- candidate mem- candidate status, this is about display of leadership also in which political leaders explain and take the burden of, you know, Take take the responsibility for part of the burden that is that is coming for Europe um, in in standing up for for a peace that may hold uh, you know for for a secure Europe which will be uh, the, and the byproduct will be peace and not for having just uh, 
just an immediate ceasefire uh, that will lead to renewed uh, and even more tragic hostility right. in, 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 in short time. So I think this debate is also very important to, to look at, that there is a, uh, that certain dichotomies between security and democracy, but also between, as you know, ECFR is trying to put it and frame it, between peace and justice are false dichotomies. There is, there is, there is not going to be um, uh, easy solutions, and, and and indeed, Europe is is moving on to 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 make some strategic decisions. Um, okay, more on that, I guess, in the upcoming editions of the podcast, and we'll be also writing about it in, in the upcoming reports, uh, foresight scenario-based reports on the on the future of Europe and voices from Central Europe. To be to be released uh, on the end of summer uh, and in September um, with with a broader and, and, and longer outlook for what Central European vision of the future of Europe might be. So stay tuned. Hi, listeners. I'm Miles Maftian, bringing you this week a very exciting guest to our show. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Andrew Mikta. Dr. Mikta is the Dean of the College of International and Security Studies at the George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies. He's a former professor on national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College and a former senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Andrew has held many other affiliations at the Minda de Gunsberg Center for European Studies at Harvard, the Center for Strategic and International Studies Europe program in Washington, D.C., and, of course, an adjunct political scientist at the RAND Corporation. Andrew provides a very strong voice for Central and Eastern Europe today. And this was my main motivation for having Andrew on. What we do is is we're trying to seek voices that will help us rethink the situation we find ourselves in the region. And most today, I would say, are wondering what will come following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I wanted to speak with Andrew about the current developments happening in the security architecture and its impact on Central Europe. So what I'm specifically interested in understanding is whether we can imagine a new power configuration in the region. We know that Finland and Sweden are gearing up to enter NATO, leading to a potentially transformative geopolitical reconfiguration, one that we really haven't seen since World War I. And of course, what's ahead with the NATO summit in Madrid at the end of the month? So welcome, Andrew. Pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Mas, for having me. And before I answer, let me just underscore that I'm speaking in my private capacity as an analyst, and my comments do not reflect the official policy or position of the Marshall Center, the Defense Department, uh, or the U.S. government. And uh, so treat them as such. What I wanted to do is actually start with where we basically are today and, and ask kind of what you see coming from the Central Eastern European region. We know that we have countries which we call the eastern flank. The eastern flank seems to understand the Russian threat kind of more so than anyone in, in this sense. And we kind of look around and we see that their relations are better, like Lithuania and Poland. Um, and, and maybe that there is this kind of understanding that this common defense that we have in the region will kind of be boosted. Uh, but it seems like countries 
like Germany are kind of wary of this perspective, right? Of having greater importance, possibly. This is kind of how I see it. Um, so kind of ha having sketched this sort of murky interregnum that we see, what exactly do you kind of see for the region to come? I know it's a big question, but the voice was kind of ignored and Germany was sort of this, you know, uh, American satellite military hub uh, in this sense. And now you see Biden is coming to Poland. You see that these voices are really principled and it's coming together. So what's kind of the chance for uh, the eastern flank of being a real regional player? This is an inflection point in history. Uh, this is something that happens maybe every four or five generations. Uh, what, what we need to keep in mind that um, when the Cold War ended, uh, one of the consequences of that was what I call the regionalization of security optics across Europe. Uh, you know, the cliche that nations live in neighborhoods and your neighborhood defines how you see the world, right? So during the Cold War, the nature of the threat was such, uh, especially if you were talking about, uh, you know, an all out war be between NATO and the Warsaw Pact, that it didn't matter where you were. If you were in, in Spain, Portugal, France, or West Germany, your risk level was the same. That changed, changed when the Warsaw Pact imploded and then when, uh, when the Soviet Union disintegrated. And even though Russia today, especially the Russian army, because Russia itself is not a threat per se, if you look at the GDP and, and, and other uh, power assets that Putin commands, but it's mainly the Russian military threat that we're talking about. So in the last 30 years, that regionalization of security optics meant that uh, countries along the flank would look at Russia as the principal threat, and they've articulated this uh, uh, repeatedly. Uh, Germany was much more bidirectional in German policy towards uh, Russia, was largely devoid of the hard power military component and wanted to manage that relationship using economic and political means. France, if you travel to Paris, right, uh, it was all about the South. Uh, it was all, all about, uh, uh, you know, um, the fact that Europe's southern border is no longer on the Mediterranean. It's really deep into Africa and Sahel and the, Rus the, the French military and the French uh, geostrategic culture would, would orient that way and de-emphasize whatever the flank countries were concerned with. And I joked sometimes that if you got to Portugal, you didn't know what really mattered because you were so far away from, from those areas. What the Russian invasion did, it, it unified NATO when it comes to the threat perception, but it has not created the same willingness of risk-taking uh, across Europe. So NATO is united, and it's one of the key objectives of the United States today, I would argue, to keep it that way. Uh, but if you look at how, for example, the Poles or the Lithuanians or the Estonians uh, or the Romanians have responded to this crisis, and how Germany seems much more diffident in terms of taking the risk. I'm not talking about political support, I'm talking about risk taking. We still have a certain degree of fragmentation. Um, several things have already taken place. Um, number one, until uh, Chancellor Schultz's Bundestag speech on the 27th of February, Germany was basically tracking to become an outlier uh, and potentially the second biggest loser in, in, in in this uh, crisis when it comes to political alignments that were emerging, um, what Scholz did is he realigned, he brought Germany back, he in effect repudiated 30 years of German policy on Russia. Uh, and with, I'm not trying to make excuses, but we have to understand how fundamental this change is. It's not just a change of policy. No, it's a change of the entire strategic culture 
uh, in Germany over the last 30 years. So uh, uh, I'm not trying to say let's cut him some slack, but I'm, I'm saying let's understand how profound these processes are if you follow the, the debates in, in German media. You know, this this is a change that has to migrate from the level of, of the government to the level of the dining room table, and it, and it takes time. Poland has become, in effect, a, a key frontier state. It's, it's what West Germany was uh, during the Cold War, in a sense. Um, and because of the implications, uh, should Ukraine not only prevail, but in fact, uh, reconquer some, if not all of its territory and remain sovereign, uh, the reconfiguration of Europe that this will trigger uh, will be fundamental. Um, if you look at the, the, the entire region, Central Europe, and, and add to this in Scandinavia, the Finns and the Swedes, you're talking about about 130 million people uh, in, the, in the Baltic Black Sea Intermarium, for the lack of a better word, with some of the fastest growth rates. Uh, uh, Ukraine that will require anywhere, I've sat recently on a discussion, will require anywhere from between 600 billion to a trillion at this level of destruction that we're seeing to, to rebuild. So you're, you're talking about, and it's not to rebuild a post-Soviet Ukraine, this is to imagine and build a different Ukraine. So you're talking about changes in Europe, and most importantly, you're talking about ending the Russian path of empire. Um, I remember a conversation I had with Zbigniew Brzezinski in 1993, um, when he said, you know, Russia with Ukraine has no other path but the imperial path. Russia without Ukraine, and I will add to this from my own position, We'll also probably see Belarus implode. I think I don't think Belarus can remain in the Russian orbit with Ukraine tied to the West and, and, and prosperous and democratic. Then you're talking about Russia being forced to confront the question of what it means to become a quote unquote normal nation state, whatever that means. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so many different things to follow up on. So I guess first kind of reminds me of, you know, in the 90s, there was this uh, in Europe, this large kind of large-scale demilitarization right in the region and there was the the famous work by robert kagan that uh, where he said europeans are from venus americans are from mars right um but the idea that the european way to peace was actually really distinct it didn't involve these traditional means of defense it kind of prided itself on this it didn't necessarily use this military might and, and so forth but now we kind of see that the full full scale war, you know, showed that there's these actors who will actually use this full scale. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I think from my perspective, I'm, I'm kind of trying to understand whether it is true that the Ukraine war actually will reshape the, the European security policy. Right. So will there actually be I know that you touched on this a bit, but will there be this sort of profound change in the European way to peace, even more so than just. Uh, from the perspective of GDP expenditure and things like this, but will will it also be part of uh, sort of like the the broader political ideals? Well, you know, uh, first of all, God bless Robert Kagan, and and I'm very happy for him and his book, and and jealous that I didn't write something that would make as much money and as many sales out right. there. But seriously. Uh, this was not about Mars and Venus. Uh, mm -hmm. This was about the fact that the Europeans were cashing in uh, on uh, the outcome of the of the Cold War. I, I wouldn't put too much weight on unipolarity and all this, you know, unipolar moment that Krauthammer would write about later on. Uh, 
because uh, this this was not really a period of, of American hegemony on a global scale. And if if any like that existed, it pretty much uh, it pretty much didn't go past the first decade um, of the 1990s. Then you know we we went off on a tangent with the global war on terror post 9/11 and the rest of it. What I'm driving at is this: Look, the, the the Soviet Union imploded, and all of a sudden, the security environment in which the Europeans were operating uh, allowed them to make a calculated decision to, I'll be very blunt, to disarm. I mean, this you know, we can build a philosophy around it. We're from you know, we were institutions based, we are we are we are rules based, blah blah blah. Uh, I don't buy it. I mean, uh, the the. Uh, the conditions in Europe were so comfortable, in a sense, that you could have countries uh, such as Germany or France or United Kingdom or whoever uh, to radically reduce the size of their militaries, to rely on the American umbrella and the shrinking but nonetheless remaining American presence in the conventional realm in Europe. Uh, and the redirect the resources to uh, to other aspects of their economy. It was just a, a wonderful deal. And then as, as China started coming online with its market, you know, what's a better deal than have the Americans provide for your security, Russia provides you with cheap energy, and uh, and have the Chinese provide you with the market and, and the rest of it, and labor arbitrage on top of everything else when you start manufacturing there. So, um, we're finally waking up from the period when when all those fancy, you know, academic shibboleths of the end of history, you know, globalization, export-driven modernization, and all that is is being exposed for it. It has always been, you know, uh, it's a traditional nation-state calculation uh, of adapting your policy to maximize your benefit and and uh, doing security on the cheap leveraging labor arbitrage in China. My country did the same thing, the United States offshore manufacturing uh, to China to, to a great detriment uh, to our current position. I thought it was lunacy. It was basically greed masquerading as an ideology. And uh, the Germans allowed for uh, energy policy to be made without much reference to national security priorities. We did the same thing with manufacturing. Uh, and we're looking at the results of this. So. Um, Europe has to not so much relearn because I think the Europeans know the fundamentals. Europe has to simply step up and do what's necessary. And instead of, you know, I mean, how many people today are talking about strategic sovereignty or autonomy or whatever? Yeah. I mean, this, this is all goofy stuff. Uh, defense is not provided by, you know, institutions drawn on a piece of paper or, or, or serious meetings and all this kind of stuff. Security is provided by real exercised military capabilities that can demonstrate to any potential adversary that in, in the event you cross the line, you will be clobbered. Uh, and that is what has been neglected. And the problem is, Miles, that uh, because of how degraded a number of military uh, establishments have become, on average, you're looking at 65% reduction in personnel. I mean, Germany's offloaded about 90% of its equipment relative to where it was at the end of the Cold War and did not modernize. I mean, the French and the Germans were going to build the fifth generation aircraft maybe in 10, 15 years, but the F-35 was not going to be in the mix. Yeah. You know, and when reality hits you in the face, you all of a sudden discover that, yes, Germany is buying the F-35. Yes, Germany is buying the heavy helicopters from the United States. Why? Because its own industry cannot deliver. Europe doesn't have the capacity to ramp up 
production when it comes to the military domain. I mean, the U.S. has that capacity. So um, I have been arguing, if you if you track what I've been writing, I've been arguing against this 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 kind of self-congratulatory fog of the post-Cold War era uh, for the last 20 years. And uh, and I, I say this uh, not with any sort of glee that I was proven right. I mean, this was obvious to me from the start. The problem is uh, that uh, we are now in a situation where hard power matters. And unless the United States provides the bridging capability to Europe, over the next decade, it's going to be a very dangerous period for you. That's actually a perfect uh, transition to my other question, because w- what we're all looking forward to, obviously, is the the NATO summit at the end of at the end of the month. So I just kind of that I, because I have you here, it's perfect. So I just kind of want to ask what what are we actually expecting? Like, do we actually think there will be any larger surprising announcements here? Is it going to be similar to what we've heard at the Strategic Art Conference, right? Um, or is there, because I've also heard that there's talk that Poland might see these permanent NATO or even U.S. troops. Maybe it could be something as crazy as, I don't know, a Fort Biden <laughs> or something like this. Can we see something like this in, in Poland anytime soon? What, what are you expecting from the NATO summit? Well, first of all, uh, the focus of the discussion is forward defense, uh, and uh, that that means that rather than the new strategic concept becoming another set of desiderata, uh, I expect uh, that forward defense will be at the center of the discussion and at the center of the document. I expect also that uh, I don't know on what timetable, but uh, installations along the flank uh, in my view will come uh, it's, it's it's i don't know it, on what timetable this will happen because you're talking about a, a very complex process right uh you're talking about not just installation building I, i'm pretty sure host countries would be happy to do so uh, or at least to contribute to it uh every time you move a division or a brigade or or a company or whatever out of the United States and deployed somewhere else, it leaves somebody's congressional district. It leaves somebody's, uh, you know, somebody's state. And uh, these are the issues that are difficult uh, uh, in political terms. Uh, right. right now, I believe support for forward deployment is is very strong in in uh, the U.S. Congress, uh, but uh, ultimately it'll be it'll be a matter of political uh, conversation negotiation. The second thing is what I expect is not only the the conversation about the United States putting assets forward, but also other NATO allies pushing uh, assets forward towards the flank. Uh, That has to happen. We all have to have skin in the game. You know, it's it's truly preposterous that uh, if you looked at the the defense spending within NATO, you know, 70 percent would be coming from the U.S. Uh, I mean, the package we just gave to to Ukraine, the 40 billion now, I mean, even though there's some some other work mm-hmm. in there, but that that dwarfs the defense annual defense budgets of some of the largest countries in Europe, you know, right. and so we need a reality check on that. And what I also expect is um, a clear sense that uh, that the Europeans will uh, commit to the reconstruction uh, of Ukraine going forward. Uh, because we're, we're we're looking at at a potentially transformative uh, landscape in Europe. This is this is if you think of the fact that the Swedes and the Finns are joining the alliance, 
that changes dramatically the security situation of the Baltic states. Uh, remember the RAND study years ago, you know, the Baltics are indefensible unless you put so many assets, et cetera, et cetera. While with Sweden and Finland and the geostrategic depth grows exponentially, it links up with Norway, the high north of Europe, uh, opens up uh, all sorts of uh, uh, operational possibilities. And uh, in effect, uh, you know, uh, leaves Russia with virtually no access to the Baltic, except for two small points, you know, you're talking about Petersburg and, and, and Kaliningrad. There's one piece that NATO has to address, and that's infrastructure. For the U.S., even, even if the U.S. increases the deployments in Europe, uh, reinforcement will remain key. Uh, you may recall during the Cold War, we had reforger exercises, return of forces to Germany, uh, which demonstrated the capability of the U.S. to bring large numbers of troops and other assets uh, into Europe. Uh, for this to happen, uh, the U.S. had guaranteed access to, to rail, bridges and overpasses were rated to, to carry at least 60 tons because a tank and a trailer were about 50 ton each at that time and so forth and, and, and so on. Uh, well, all of this has been neglected. Okay. Today, the trailers are bigger, the tanks are heavier. You're looking at about 70 uh, ton per unit uh, access to rail, the number of trailers that are needed to carry access to ports with the Chinese acquisition of various uh, assets in Europe. You know, this this is a very complicated picture. So NATO, in order to 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 become truly a deterrent uh, for any future aggression from the east, it needs to not only rebuild its militaries, it needs to rebuild its infrastructure. The army runs on logistics. I mean, the Russians have demonstrated this in Ukraine. You can bring as many tanks as you want to. If you don't have fuel, those tanks will not drive. So a huge reconstruction effort uh, that will require consensus and that will require unity uh, in the alliance going forward. Yeah, if you don't have the actual bridges to hold the tanks as you pass through them. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay, one last question, if you, if you still have a, sure. a, a bit of time. So I hear so much about this model of total defense total defense comprehensive defense i think in poland it's something called universal defense and we know that when i kind of do the research on it you you look and you try to find those exempt exemplary states that do this so you think of finland you think of sweden um and the idea there and you kind of harped back on this about um defense also around the dinner table so i'm also kind of curious first you know, how much NATO is actually pushing this, if this could work in somewhere like Poland. And secondly, this idea of increasing civilians participation in defense as well. So I've seen this a lot when you look at Poland, I've seen this a lot in not only these uh, riflemen associations or paramilitary organizations, but also military classes in, in public schools and sort of things like this, where you look and military sociologists say that, oh, this is just a sort of way to get more soldiers. Um, it's kind of a recruitment channel in the sense. But I think there is going to be this actual shift happening. And, and the question is, is how will this total defense actually work? Can it actually work in, in, in other countries like this? Well, well, a couple of things. First of all, the, the war in Ukraine right now is a huge lab that is testing a lot of the assumptions about what warfare will look like right now. Uh, you may know the United States uh, has now a program called Army 2035, which yes. is to create a cross-domain 
joint force, uh, probably already semi-complete by 2029, but definitely by 2035. Uh, and that means not only uh, you know new platforms, but also high-end enablers, uh, extensive use of cyber, uh, intelligence awareness, the, the whole spectrum of, of things that we need. And a couple of things that we've learned in Ukraine, and, and that's why I think total defense is the way to go uh, forward in Europe in particular. But total defense will require several things that the Ukrainians currently have. It requires situational awareness. Uh, the, uh, the kind of high-end capabilities that only the United States can provide and very few NATO countries uh, can provide uh, are very important. What we've also learned is that uh, light infantry saturated with anti-tank and anti-air you know, javelins and stingers and purins and whatever you want to name it, can effectively defend territory. Uh, the, the first campaign, the first war, if you will, the initial onslaught, which was executed by the Russians in the, in the most incompetent fashion and and was premised on some sort of a blitzkrieg where Kiev, the government would be decapitated and new regime would be put in place. Uh, it turns out that uh, the, the territorial defense force that the Poles stood up and, and the government was criticized for roundly can actually be quite effective. Um, right. uh, Finland is a very good example of that. I remember even during the Cold War, traveling through Norway and seeing, you know, in, on farms and in villages, people with weapons, with, with uh, assault rifles, with missiles, uh, small, small caliber stuff and, and things like that. Um, in the end, the, this phase of the war is the grind. I mean, the Russians did what the Russians always do. Uh, they started running out of precision munitions, which have not been that precise, I would argue anyway. And they took a big hammer uh, and it became long range artillery missiles, dumb bombs uh, that are killing a lot of people and, and destroying a lot of infrastructure. Uh, once the Ukrainians have full capability for counter battery and long range fires, this will change. <laughs> because they will be able to then repay the Russians in kind. And even, even though the Russian blobs, that, that red space on the map has been creeping forward, that they've been paying an incredibly high price for that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and then the side, side aspect of this war is that the Ukrainians are effectively grinding down the Russian military. Right. I mean, this is, this is a, a remarkable outcome, uh, considering that the, the Sino-Russian alliance sought to create a two-frontier crisis for us. You know, one in the Indo-Pacific, one in Eastern Europe. Um, those people who, you know, argue Ukraine is a distraction because we should be focusing on China should appreciate that they're actually getting their dream come true because a rearmed Europe that can provide uh, conventional deterrence exercise capabilities. I would get rid of the 2% target, by the way, tomorrow because it's a political football and, and nothing, nothing else. I mean, I don't care if you spend... 2% of your GDP on defense, if 80% of that goes to personnel costs, as some countries in Europe do, you know, where you have air force that can only fly in circles over, over your capital. That's not, a, that's non-deployable. That's not an air force, the flight club, you know, so, so real capabilities and not how much money we spend. So coming back to total defense, I think, I think especially uh, keeping in mind that Russia, Russia is fighting a Soviet style war without having the Soviet style resources. Uh, neither population, nor trained military, nor the capability. Notice he's not, he is not calling up people from major cities. He's going into the villages. He's afraid of the impact this would have politically. Uh, let me project as, as a kind of last, last concluding uh, statement here. 
let's imagine the power distribution in Europe. Once you have uh, independent sovereign Ukraine that's tied to the West, uh, I think it would be a matter of time before Belarus would implode. I don't think Lukashenko could could uh, hold on to power. And you saw already what happens in a country that is an independent state, even nominally. It's got its own institutions, flag, you know, uh, parliament and whatnot. And a generation grows up under the system. Those bri- brave Belarusian young men and women in the streets protesting the stolen election tells you all you need to know. There's a national identity emerging. Uh, and in Ukraine, Putin did anything but, uh, you know, destroy the sense of national identity of the Ukrainians. On the contrary, he consolidated it. I mean, Kharkiv, which was pretty much a Russian-speaking city, is, is a bastion defending against it. So we're looking at an incredible opportunity for Europe. But for this to happen, those frontline states have to be committed uh, to, to, uh, to defense like never before. And the countries that are behind them, you know, Germany is where most of the American legacy institutions are, installations, military, you know, and, and, and whatnot. Uh, Poland is the frontier state, the Baltic states, Romania. This all falls together. It all has to be part of, of one uh, operational planning. Um, I think this is a this war is an incredible tragedy for the Ukrainian people, but it's also an incredible opportunity uh, for Europe. And here's why, and there'll be the concluding sentence if you don't mind. Um, I look at what's going on, on, went on in Russia for the last 30 years, very, very much like what went in on an interwar Germany between the First and the Second World War, where the narrative that was created was that somehow the great, you know, German people were betrayed, the great German army was victorious, and they got the Dolchstoss and the politicians sold them out. I think Putin has been planning this war for the last 20 years, and he's created this narrative that the great Russian army was never defeated, there was no great battle, you know, they were betrayed by the Yeltsins, Lenins, whatever, Gorbachevs. The reality is the Russians lost because they ran out of Jews. They they were no longer able to compete, spend an enormous amount of money in the 70s to build the ocean-going Navy, the Gorshkov Navy, right? Uh, And then there was a digital revolution, and all of a sudden they discovered that they could not carry on. That's how great power competition really plays itself out, not always in this kinetic realm. So I think what's going to happen as a result of this war, assuming that Ukraine will hold out, and I think it's got a very good chance with our support to do so, is that the Russians will understand that not only were they defeated on the battlefield in Ukraine, but that they were defeated in the Cold War. And that's the beginning of the process that I think must happen within within this Russian near imperial cycle. Thank you so much, Andrew. Very much appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.